This morning, we are going to be in Matthew 28. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, 28 verse 16. And while you're turning, I just want to uh, open up with a, a question, really important question. Do you remember where you were when Star Wars Episode One came out? <laughs> Do you remember? You, you might have to be 30 or so years old to have that memory. Um, I have that memory. I was 12 when Episode One came out in 1999. And I don't know, for, for a 12-year-old, for me and all my friends, there was nothing quite so exciting and addicting as Star Wars Episode One. Most of us had grown up just wearing out our parents' VHS copies of the old movies, and we knew, oh, there's a new Star Wars coming out, this is incredible, and we went and we saw the thing. I, had, I drugged my parents to that movie, I think, six times in theaters, which, what was wrong with them? But... Uh, no, they, they loved me, and they wanted me to see Star Wars a lot of times. And uh, it, it was interesting. So I, I love the movie, was obsessed with it. I've shared from the pulpit some of the darker aspects of my obsession with that movie. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to Backlog Sermons. It's in there. But basically, I just have this distinct memory of, of love, falling in love with that movie, thinking there was nothing cooler. And then, you know, a couple, as a couple years went on, this fascinating thing happened where I began to realize like the larger cultural consensus that this was a terrible movie. <laughs> uh, I remember the critics uh, discovering like the critics hate this movie. Most of the people who grew up like when were kids when the original Star Wars movies came out hate this movie. And uh, even weirder, by the time a couple years had passed, I realized I hate this movie. Uh, it's not good. Um, and it's interesting, it raises the question um, of, of, of what is Star Wars for? Like what's the purpose of Star Wars? What is the, what is the function of a Star Wars movie? Uh, to know whether or not a Star Wars movie is a good or bad example of a Star Wars movie, you need to know what's this thing for, what's the purpose? And you could answer that question a number of ways. You could, you could say, well, is, is a Star Wars movie for children? Does it merely exist to get kids excited uh, about the cool things happening a long time ago in a galaxy far away? Uh, is that all it needs to be, is something that entertains kids? Um, is, is it for satisfying the nostalgia of former children who grew up on the old movies, so now is everything beholden to satisfying the like 40 and 50 and 60 year old person who's like, I know what Star Wars is really like. Is it for them? Uh, is it for Disney's shareholders? Is Star Wars merely a corporate product, uh, just, just peak commercialism that merely exists to satisfy boards and shareholders financially? Is Star Wars for serious artistic expression being smuggled into sort of pop blockbuster formats? Does this exist for George Lucas? Not anymore, he sold it off, but could you make the case when he owned Star Wars? Well, he invented it. He gets to determine what a Star Wars movie is. And he says episode one is Star Wars, so we have to respect that. Does it exist for toy companies? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. It doesn't, honestly, to me, seem like Disney really knows right now what Star Wars is for, which feels like the brand is sort of like weird stuff's going on. But I heard that new show is pretty awesome. Has anyone seen that? I haven't seen it. I will watch it. Um, 
So my point is this, to know what makes a good Star Wars movie, an effective Star Wars movie, you have to sort of a- answer the question, like what is the purpose of this thing? What kind of thing is this supposed to be? And it's a movie, it's uh, gonna be subjective, probably to a degree, but raises a, a more fundamental question, which I think we have to answer as a church community, which is, what is church for? In the same way, there could be a million definitions, maybe not a million, there's only a couple, there's a couple hundred people in here, a couple hundred definitions of what a church might be, what it's supposed to be, what its function is. Um, and depending on what the definition of church and its function and its purpose is will help us determine whether or not Door of Hope, and in particular, Door of Hope Northeast is an effective, good, healthy expression of, of church. And so, um, this being one of my last chances, actually, just have a Sunday to sort of cast some vision for Northeast, um, I wanted to just turn to where I, I think we find Jesus' basic, fundamental marching orders for the church. Uh, and, and unpack that together. Does that sound good? All right. Well, if, you're, if you've got your Bible, again, Matthew 28, we're gonna start in verse 16. I'll read the first couple verses. These are the last verses of the gospel according to Matthew. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And we'll pause there. Um, so I want to just pause for a moment and do a little recap of what, what the, the, these disciples, these 11, are experiencing in this moment. These are 11 men who had, at early on in Jesus' public ministry had come across Jesus, had been called by Jesus to come and travel with him, follow him, uh, to be kind of his closest inner circle of followers. And as they went, as Jesus began to teach, as he began to heal, as he began to talk about the kingdom of God and and, and give mysterious hints about his own identity and what his purpose was and what he was gonna accomplish. More and more people began to follow and there'd be hundreds of people who would travel with Jesus for times and, and come and go. It was just this little interesting sort of Jewish religious movement that was springing up with Jesus as the, the central teacher and figure of this thing. And as they traveled with Jesus and learned from him and listened to him, they, they over time began to become more and more impressed that there's something special like really special about this guy. Uh, At some point, Peter had the confession that like, I believe you are the son of God. They they began to identify him as as the prophesied Messiah, the anointed king who would come and fulfill all the promises God had made to his people throughout the Old Testament. And so this anticipation began to build and they, surely their confidence was growing. Wow, I think this is really the guy. Like we're we're here, this is all happening. And then what happened? Well, uh, he was killed. Jesus was uh, killed as a, as a political and religious enemy by the Roman Empire. Uh, he was publicly ex- tortured and executed in a way many criminals were uh, outside the city. And he was buried. He was put in a tomb. And so you just, just try to imagine what the disciples, these 11, were feeling in that moment. Like most of them abandoned him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested, and they're hiding out and catch word that, oh, someone says he's alive. Like at the moment where all the, the person they'd hung all their hopes on, their religious hopes, whatever else, all hopes, he had died. 
and they're left in that moment. Of course, the story goes on, the, tomb, the, the stone was rolled away, the tomb was opened, and the female disciples that were still faithful and still committed, they, they came to the tomb and an angel told them that actually he's risen, he's not here. And they were to spread the word, they were to be the first evangelist to go and tell the other disciples, hey, uh, Jesus is risen, he's gonna meet you in Galilee, you're supposed to go meet him. So you just imagine the 11 getting that word like, oh, he's alive? We saw him flayed open dead on a cross. And if we, weren't, if we were too afraid to go and see it, we at least heard about it. Um, so they went. Galilee was three or four days journey on foot from Jerusalem, that region. And so they made the journey. And there's a couple important things to note. First, the location. It's important that that's up on a mountain in the region of Galilee. First, the, the mountain is often a place in the scriptures of, of significant revelation from God. And so uh, some scholars are beginning to think that the Garden of Eden was situated on a mountain. Uh, think of Mount Sinai. Think of Jesus or Moses receiving the law and the revelation of who God is and, and the establishment of Israel as a people up on Sinai. Think earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes his inner core up and has his his. Uh, visage changed into his radiant divine glory before their eyes. This is another mountaintop experience. That's important for us. It's a place of significance. And then secondarily, note the region, the Galilee region. This is where Jesus grew up, but maybe more importantly, this is where Jesus actually began his public ministry. Uh, this is where the whole thing began and where many of these disciples, maybe, I believe all of these disciples began to follow him there. And so this is not only a moment of spiritual significance that Jesus is about to lead them into, but it's a fresh beginning is kind of the idea that we're supposed to get here. And look at their responses. Their responses, first of all, their, their instant and proper response to seeing Jesus' resurrection appearance is worship. I mean, from the crushing depths of thinking all is lost, the Messiah's been killed, game over, to oh my gosh, something's happened that we didn't even think was possible. This man's been raised from the dead, confirming all that he taught and all that he claimed to be. So they fall down and they worship. They worship him. But there's another response right next to that. Doubt could also be translated hesitation. What's going on with that? Some, some have tried to say, well, maybe there's more than the 11 there because the 11 clearly would have just all been worshiping, but Matthew only really, Matthew describes it's only the 11 there. Um, some have said maybe it's that some of the 11 worshiped and some of them doubted, and that might be the case. But I think it's just as likely that this is pointing out this all too human experience to an extraordinary situation like this. Like, for all of us, I, I would guess there have been moments where you've, maybe in your heart of hearts, you've believed, you've desired to worship, maybe you have worshiped, maybe this morning as you're singing songs of praise to Jesus, at the same time, you know, you let your perspective shift just a bit and doubt can just come flooding in. Like, man, do I really believe any of this? Is this really true? Are we just sitting here singing nonsense to no one? And I think Matthew just captures this incredibly human and common response. I love the way that the theologian commentator Frederick Bruner puts this, commenting on this verse. He says, there has never been 
a worshiper of Jesus who did not also doubt him. Matthew's daring inclusion of the divided mind at the very birth of mission is his way of saying that doubt should not be taken too tragically. Doubt your doubts. It's not as if doubt's presence should paralyze Christ or Christians. Doubt simply is, however explained, a component of disciples' little faith. They're still imperfect humanity this side of the general resurrection. Matthew's good news in this report is that worship and doubt can and do coexist. And so I think, I think he's right about that. I think here we get, we get some permission to doubt. Hopefully you relate. Those, those of us who've never seen Jesus in the flesh can take comfort knowing those who saw him right after his resurrection still struggled with doubt. And you could take this too far. Sometimes there's a spirit that can creep into church communities where doubt is kind of like valorized or lionized and like you're not, you're not serious if you don't have extreme doubts and if you're not like agonizing in your faith. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what this is getting at. But I think this is just a, a, a call to remember like doubt happens. And Josh has taught us before, this stuck with me, that even the presence of doubt can be evidence that there's a more fundamental faith there somewhere beneath it. Um, so that's their response to the resurrected Jesus. They worship and they doubt. Then Jesus speaks. We'll read the next section. He's going to talk about his authority. Verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's making a comprehensive claim to authority. And I just want to unpack for a second what exactly he's claiming because it's massive. First of all, this phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth. He's saying all authority in God's realm, up above where God is, God's space, all authority down here in our space. And, and the implication is everything in between. The point is all authority that there is to grasp is mine, Jesus says. And then the implications are for all nations, as we read on. Not only that, as he talks about baptism, he, he says people are to be baptized not only in the name of God the Father, who they'd be familiar with, and of God the Son, or I'm sorry, God the, the Spirit, they'd be familiar with, but God the Son, whom, whom the life and ministry of Jesus has snapped into focus. He puts himself as part of the triune Godhead. He goes on to say, what you teach is my commandments. He says this has implications for all the days that are to come until the end of the age. Bruner, again, I just love this quote. He, say, he, he says here, Jesus is saying all spiritual, metaphysical, philosophical, and religious power in heaven, but also all social, physical, political, and economic power on earth are in his hands. He is in charge around here. The world experiences a massive divestment. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of Christ. That's what this means. And not just that, but he's, he's claiming the mantle, uh, once again, of the fa his favorite title in the Gospels, which was this title of the Son of Man, which comes from Daniel. And read this, just listen to this. In Daniel 7, 14, it says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be 
destroyed. He's lacing that language here into the Great Commission. And so this is kingdom language. This is, this is language of the one who was literally mocked as a joke king, the crown of thorns, fake scepter, purple robe, a sign mocking him above his head that said, King of the Jews. He's saying, no, I actually am the, the one true and rightful king of everything that exists. That's what he's claiming. That's what he's claiming. And then finally, I think he's implicitly claiming and showing himself to be the first fruits of new creation. So the rest of the New Testament is going to make this connection explicit that Jesus' resurrection is a preview, it's a foretaste of future resurrection. Paul lays this out in multiple of his letters, but the idea is that, is that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will his people be. You want to know what our future is like? You look at the resurrected Jesus. That's a preview of what's going to happen to all of his people. And then similarly, in the same way that Jesus was resurrected, the whole world, the, the whole created world itself will be resurrected. That's the meaning of the new heavens and the new earth, that it's going to be restored, redeemed, all the thorns and thistles taken out, and it's going to be restored to its, to its once and future glory. So Jesus is a, is a living, breathing, visible foretaste of the future that he promises to his people and to all of creation, right here, standing in front of them. All of this hinges on the fact that these people saw him die. They heard him teach, they saw him die, and then they saw him raised, standing before him. If that's true, we can trust what he says. So that's the authority of Jesus. So the question is, what does he do with that authority? Okay, Jesus, you're authoritative. What now? Well, he goes on. Verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Scholars and church leaders throughout history have called this the Great Commission. Probably heard that phrase before, the Great Commission. There's so much going on here, so much packed into just a few verses. Uh, but I want to note one thing in particular. As I studied this freshly in preparation for this sermon, one thing that just jumped out at me and blew my mind about the significance of this verse and to, to let it hit properly, we have to go back to Genesis 1. Um, in Genesis 1, we've got, the, of course, the creation account, culminating on the sixth day with the creation of man and woman. And uh, you can see it there. I'll start in verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the idea here is that at the inauguration of creation, when, when the Lord spoke the world, everything in it, up to and including people into existence, that inauguration moment, he gives them a commission have you ever wondered, like, well, why did God create people? What, was, what were they for? Here it is. This is it. That God's image bearers, the people bearing his image and likeness, 
are to multiply and fill the entire earth with more image bearers and thus to extend the glory of God, ruling and cultivating and making better the whole created, raw material of the created world. That's it. That was the plan before sin entered the picture. We're to be his, his rulers with delegated authority, authority to go multiply and to cultivate the, world, the beautiful world that he's made. Theologians call that the cultural mandate or some have even called it the first great commission. Of course, by Genesis 3, the whole thing's gone haywire. In Genesis 3, you have the, inter- the entrance of sin, rebellion against God, and now what that means with the sinful humanity, what that means is that now as humans, are, they are gonna spread and multiply, but now as they spread and multiply around the earth, they're not taking God's rule with them. They're taking rebellion, and they're taking evil, and they're taking sin, and they're taking death, and they're taking a destruction, and they're taking abuse, and they're taking corruption. And that is the story of the biblical narrative, how God is working within that context to, to redeem. It's the story of human history. Read a history book, turn on the news. That's what we do, that's what people do. We spread and we, we bring our sin with us as we do it. And this, this issue, This issue of sinful humanity is the very issue that Jesus came to address in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And so it's incredibly significant here, I want you to hear this, that in Matthew 28, just as when the first creation was inaugurated with a commission, so now the new creation with Jesus as the preview is inaugurated with a new great commission. That's the same in content. It's to go out and to make disciples. Now it's not through procreation of perfect people, it's by the preaching of the gospel and letting people come and be part of what Jesus has accomplished for them, to be transformed, to be a part of this new community and new humanity that Jesus is building. You see that? So there's the first commission, now this is the second commission, and this is how how it's gonna work, accounting for sin, and it's the program until Jesus returns. So that's what's going on here. So now let's look at the scope. What's the scope of this thing? Well, we have a few clues. First, let's look at the temporal scope, which is all time. He says always. I'll be with you always, which literally just is, the more literal translation is all the days until the end of the age. And then it's to the end of the age. This commission was to stand long after the 11 disciples present had died. This is the program until Jesus returns in full to finish what he started. So the scope is all time until Jesus' return. The geographic scope is all nations. So in Greek it's panta ta ethne, all the nations, literally. And it's similar to what we see Jesus say in Acts 1.8. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the plan. It's to go everywhere. And so I, I want to pause and ask this question. So do you, do you realize that for a first, the first century Jewish writers, audience, for Jesus, for the disciples that were present in this moment historically, Portland in 2019 is the end of the earth, right? I mean, we are literally on the opposite side of the globe. 
We are, liter- we are a couple thousand years removed. I mean, just think about the amount of like providence and faithfulness that God has had to enact. Both God and his people have had to enact for thousands of years later. We are here gathering around the exact same words that Jesus spoke to these disciples, believing that this man was God in the flesh, raised from the dead, and that he is going to do all the things that he's promised. We are the evidence of his faithfulness to make sure that this happens. So Portland is the ends of the earth. The church must grow and flourish here for this to be, this commission to be enacted. It's begun, and it must continue to grow. But at the same time, we have to note that the rest of the world is also the ends of the earth. Like, the church must care about the world beyond itself as well, because at the end of the day, um, there are plenty of folks who have never once had the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. And so, this raises an interesting tension for us um, that we have to think through. Like, we need to say unequivocally that our city needs healthy churches populated with healthy Christians committed to healthy, faithful witness here. And that it would be a tragic loss for all the Christians in Portland to say, well, I'm gonna follow the Great Commission. I'm gonna go somewhere else. Because that would just mean, oh, well, okay, we gotta send people back to, back to Portland. The point is not that Christians are an ever-growing, nomadic group going from place to place, but that churches would be established and communities would be rooted and that God's new creation people would be working for the good of one another and their city and proclaiming the faithfulness of Jesus and so forth. So our city needs the gospel. And in particular, we live in a city where the gospel is woefully, woefully underrepresented. At the same time, the gospel still needs to move forward all over the globe. There are places and peoples who have never come into contact with the love that God has for them in Christ. And this calls us to care about that. We, we have to care about that if we're gonna be faithful to Jesus. And so, I would just note here that we have actually some new and exciting opportunities on the horizon as, as uh, the elders are exploring different ways Door of Hope can sort of pick back up the mantle to uh, be a, a part of the gospel going forward internationally. Uh, we'll just say that, we'll hear more about that at some point, but that's a talk for another day. For now, I hope, I hope the point is taken that Jesus' command here has everything to do with local church ministry here in Portland, both what we do in this city and how we mobilize ourselves to actually help, help the mission go out elsewhere. So all this applies to us, not just to the 11 that were present there, but to you and to me. And whatever Jesus' agenda is here, it's, it's his agenda for all time until he returns for each church and for each individual follower of him. Okay, that's the scope. So what's the task? What was he actually calling us to do? Um, well, the key verb, key word here in the sentence is this word, make disciples. And the word disciple could be translated a number of ways. You could translate it learner. You could translate it student. You could translate it apprentice. You could translate it Padawan. <laughs> that's nerd, that's really nerdy. Don't translate it that way, that's a Star Wars reference. If you don't, if, you know, if you don't know what Padawan is, you're better off, don't worry about it. 
Um, but to make learners, students, apprentices, disciples. That's the task. Uh, that's the key command here. And so uh, this is an important word in churches. It gets to discipleship, making disciples gets defined all kinds of ways. You probably go on Amazon, you'll find thousand different books with a thousand different programs for making disciples or doing discipleship. Um, and I think it's just lucky for us, Jesus has given us some pretty specific guardrails around this thing right here in this passage. Um, so there's two, uh, there's two words, two participles in the Greek that, that put content to this idea of making disciples. So what is making disciples, Jesus? He says it's two things, at least. It's baptizing, it's the first, and it's teaching is the second. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. So let's break these down. What are these about? So baptizing. So baptizing is the, wrapped up in this idea is the whole process of evangelizing, of witnessing, of sharing the good news with people who don't know Jesus, that they might come to trust him for salvation, and then following salvation, following their faith and repentance and trust in him, that they might be baptized, both to identify with him and to identify with the community of people that he's established to follow him. So wrapped up in baptism is this idea of people being shared the gospel for the first time, coming to faith, and then being baptized as an expression of that new faith. So what we could say here, what's the purpose of the church? Let's answer that. Who is the church for? The church is for those outside of it. The church is for those outside of it. We are to be about gospel witness, to tell people the good news, the good news that there is a loving creator God who made a good world, and then that all the evil and brokenness and death, sin and all its effects is real, tragic, and morally significant in contrast to some of the philosophies of our day. It's morally significant. That God himself lovingly has entered into the human story uniquely in the person of Jesus, a first century blue collar Jewish man of no great report who was also fully God. The good news is that he lived perfectly, he healed miraculously, he taught authoritatively about God and his kingdom. As we mentioned, he was executed by the Roman Empire as a political threat and as a religious threat. But even more fundamentally than that, he was killed he died for the sins of the world, taking into himself the result, the consequence, and the punishment for our own rebellions and shortcomings. He actually, seriously, not metaphorically, not in some weird spiritual sense, he really actually bodily raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days vindicating what he taught and who he claimed to be before ascending up to the right hand of God and promising that he would come back to ultimately wipe away every tear and put everything right. 
but that there's a time of grace for people to come and to trust and to come and be a part of what he's doing in the world. That he cleared every barrier between us and God. That he offers us forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, but righteousness. And not just righteousness, but joy and peace. And even the promise of participation in this good future where he restores the world and his people to the glory originally intended for them. And sweetest of all, that he offers all of this to us in an act of sheer, unmerited grace. That there is not a single thing any person has to do to receive it. He says, I do all the work. If you just trust me and bend the knee to me. So that's gospel witness. This baptism speaks of that. It speaks of new birth, of people coming from death to life, of people coming into relationship with Jesus and identifying with his community for the first time. That's baptism. Go and make disciples. Baptizing. What's the second thing? Teaching them to keep everything he taught. <laughs> pretty, pretty simple. Take in the weight of that phrase. Teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. First, note, of all, note first that it's all that Jesus specifically commanded. We aren't at liberty to invent our own message because we find something more compelling or more exciting or more trendy or whatever else. It's Jesus' message, the authoritative one's message. So if it's his message, also note that it's all that he commanded. In his time with them and through the Spirit and its inspiration of the Scriptures, and there's so many categories here. We can think of his plainly theological teachings about God and salvation and the gospel and the kingdom and the church and his return but also think about his ethical teachings about how we treat friends and how we treat enemies and the poor, widows, orphans, your spouse, your children, your employees, your employers, your body, your sexuality, the government, your money, and so on. It's ultimately wrapped up in this is the whole counsel of God rightly understood that we find throughout the scriptures. And so this, this idea of, of teaching people to obey all that he's commanded, this is our category for spiritual formation, for deep discipleship, for discipline, for growth. You could call it training. You could call it development. You could call it maturing. The point here is this. Who's the church for? The church is for those inside it. to see those inside it grow into fuller and fuller, deeper and deeper intimacy and reflection of Jesus and who he is. So we've got tension, don't we? A push and pull. We're called to go, baptize, see new people come into the faith. That's discipleship. But also, discipleship is teaching them to obey, once they're in the family, all that Jesus has commanded. Which is crazy, it's a lot. I just want to note for a second, like what happens if we neglect one of these? You could almost imagine as this narrow road that churches walk on, and it's just so easy to slip into one ditch or another on either side of this thing. 
Like, on one ditch, you might call it the evangelism-only church. And let's say that these are, these are kinds of churches that they end up, they're a mile wide, tons of people, tons of excitement, but they're an inch deep. They're all about the baptism side of this, but they're not taking up the task of teaching people to follow after Jesus, to pick up their cross and come after him. They often get eaten up by the outside world with a message to bring, but they end up being conformed to the world because when the questions start to come and when the tensions start to come, they start to crumble. They're fired up to say something, but they maybe don't have anything of substance to say once you get beyond the surface. People end up ignoring the calls to Christ-likeness and ignoring the calls to leave milk for solid food. It can be open to serious charges of hypocrisy because we don't reflect Christ, because we haven't disciplined ourselves after him. And this tendency starts with what, what are called seeker-sensitive sensibilities that, you know, where the whole idea is that let's just remove every barrier that makes it difficult for someone to come and hear the message of Jesus. Let's make it lowest common denominator, simplest, easiest, seeker-sensitive. And there's a good heart and a good impulse in that. We shouldn't erect unnecessary barriers for people to come hear about Jesus, of course. But if the impulse starts there, it ends in sort of liberalized theology where the, the theology has emptied itself of everything challenging or controversial or unfashionable to the point where it no longer is recognizably Christian in any historic sense of that word. These churches may have a lot of new and excited people, but once those people begin to desire depth, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere that will give it to them. So that's the evangelism-only church. On the other ditch, you might have the spiritual growth-only church. Um, you could describe them as ingrown and impenetrable, <laughs> like an insider's club that's so dense and now they're all learning things together and they have no patience for anyone who doesn't know what's going on, who can't keep up. New people come like, oh, I don't, I don't think I wanna belong to these people. There's a lack of excitement or a sterility can foster a disinterest, or even worse, a fear, or even worse, a hatred of people who are outside the church. I don't care, I'm afraid, or I hate them. And utterly invert the heart of Jesus toward the world. Can be disconnected from God's mission to seek and save the lost, can be a, a cultivator of theological pettiness. You ever been around someone like that? These churches may have a lot of educated people, but once they begin to cultivate a heart for the lost, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere else because they know it's important, that this is part of what the church is called to, to see new people come in and experience the joy of life with Christ. So if those are the ditches, what happens if we're faithful in both? If we somehow can navigate this dynamic tension with faithfulness in the way that Jesus intended? Well, I think it would represent a balanced word and deed faith, that it would intentionally and effectively be part of God's rescue mission. 
Josh has put it this way before, that evangelism would fuel our growth because as you're going out and you're sharing, trying to share the good news, like look look how much God loves you, look what Jesus has done for you, and you get questions and you get pushback and you get, well, what about this, or this doesn't make any sense, or I heard this was a contradiction, or whatever else. You're driven back to study and to learn and to ask questions and to process that in community. And as you do that, you're excited, because oh, I have something to share, and you go back and you share, and it's just this mutually mutually filling, mutually encouraging process where our growth and our evangelism scaffold one another and build one another up. And I think this would allow us to be the kind of church that's hated for the right reasons. Christians are hated for a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. And many of them are to our shame. Jesus said, Look, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And we all need to be prepared for that. But our hope is that we'd be the kind of church that would be hated because of our faithfulness to Jesus and our consistency with what he was about and the tone with which he operated, rather than because of our hypocrisy and our blatant disregard for him and his love for the world around us. This kind of balance would help us be hated for, (laughs) for the right reasons, hopefully. So, discipleship or the call to make disciples, I think we could define broadly to include everything churches and the individual Christians within those churches do on the spectrum from initially sharing the gospel with someone all the way up to helping people grow into the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is how Ephesians puts it. Into the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's about seeing the gospel go wider and wider and wider out into the world and simultaneously deeper and deeper and deeper into the hearts of each individual. These together are the purpose of the church. This is why we're here. And I would just say collectively, like what happens on our Sunday worship gatherings, what happens in our classes and Bible studies, happens at retreats, what happens in community groups or Genesis groups or whatever else. I mean, we're gonna start 24 days of early morning prayer starting next Sunday through the month of December. All of these are contexts that should and can be discipleship contexts where both new people are coming to know Jesus and the people who know Jesus are being driven into deeper and deeper intimacy with him. That's our prayer. But then individually, we all have our own unique roles to play. The people who preach sermons or lead Bible studies or lead a community group, they're gonna provide one thing, one piece of this puzzle. People that serve on Sundays, people that do other things, like people who, you you know, you name, people who are leading our outreach initiatives, they're providing one other really important piece of this. The people who just show up, who just attend small group, who who come faithfully on Sundays and are interested in the people around them, who ask good questions, who care, who offer to pray for people, who offer to listen, say, hey, why don't we just go and read the Bible together? They're providing something else invaluable too. And so I I want you to hear this, this call to make disciples, both baptizing and teaching, it's for all of us. It is not a call to the professional ministers. It's not a call to like the Pope or something. 
It's to all of us. It's for the young person in this room who feels like you don't have any experience and therefore nothing to say to anybody. It's for you. It's for the mom with three kids who literally hasn't had a full night of sleep in like four years. This is for you too. You have something valuable to contribute here. It's for the depressed and anxious believer who's just racked with insecurity or doubt or whatever else. You have something to offer too. And when I say that, I, I don't want that to be received as like a burdensome task that this isn't like, so you better shape up and start, start doing your part. I want you to hear this as a, as a dignifying a dignifying encouragement that whatever your circumstance, if you are walking with Christ, if you know him, you can be used in a meaningful way in someone else's life. And it doesn't have to be the same way the person next to you does or whatever else, or the person up here or whatever else. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses this idea of a body. The church is a one body made up of many members, many parts, to illustrate this very thing. No two people in this room have the exact same mix of spiritual gifts, natural talents, personality, temperament, and maybe most importantly, relational opportunity. No two of you have the same. You're all uniquely wired and uniquely placed and positioned to do spiritual good to someone that I'm not positioned to do that to, but you are. And so that teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, it reminds us a couple of things. No one can do everything. No one person is gifted in all the ways. No one person can just be a church. And at the same time, no one of us have nothing to contribute when it comes to making disciples at Door of Hope. There are no supermen here, and there's no one that's useless and out of the game. We have to keep both of those things in mind at all times. And so this is the task. This is what Jesus is calling us to. These are the marching orders of the church collectively and as us as members of the church individually to go make disciples, seeing people come to faith, be baptized, and seeing people grown and taught into maturity with Christ. This is the kind of community we are desperate, desperate to be at Door of Hope Northeast. And I'm certain that this is the kind of community that they are, we, I know, we are desperate to be here at Door of Hope Southeast. And so this is daunting. Hear all that, you're probably like, okay, that's, that's intense. But look at the note of encouragement that Jesus' words, and really the whole gospel, ends on here. Last verse, last half verse. There's a promise. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this idea of God with us. Verse 23, the quotation, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole point of Jesus' incarnation is this is God coming into the human story, identifying us with us in the most profound way possible. He is with us. He says, no less now that I'm about to ascend to the Father's hand. Until the end of the age, all the days, I am with you. 
So Matthew begins with God with us and Matthew ends with God with us, Jesus with us. And so the task is huge. Task is huge to, to not fall off into either ditch or the other, but to faithfully be the kind of people in church who witness to new people that they might enter the family of God and to come alongside them to see them built up into Christ-likeness. No matter how scary or overwhelming or difficult that seems, the promise here is the king of the universe is with us. He's, made, he's brought the gospel this far. It's 2019 in Portland, and he's been faithful, and he will continue to be so until the end of the age. Amen?